I would ask you to please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Um, we're reading out of Genesis chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 11 um, and going through to verse 22. We'll skip a couple of verses in there, but again, Genesis 6, 11 through 22. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. And then skipping down to verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing of the earth according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Patrick. <clears throat> well, again, uh, good to be with you all. Uh, I'd love to just pray for our time as we jump in um, to God's word this morning. So let's, let's take a moment to pray. Father in heaven, um, those are sobering words that we just heard read. And Lord, I come to you as, uh, as a man, as a pastor, as a, as, as a believer in you with, with doubts and questions and challenges uh, that this story presents. Lord, I pray that you would give us clarity and understanding to your word. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. I pray that you, your spirit would open our eyes to see truth and understand that we might walk in your ways in all things. And so, Lord, we entrust this time to you for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you were, um, if you were in town on Tuesday, April 30th, there's a good chance you saw what I saw. The biggest and brightest rainbow I have ever laid my eyes upon. Who saw it? Who saw it? There you go. There you go. That's a lot of armpits. That's wonderful. So, this, so photo credit, this is from Pastor Jonathan Van Mana. I did not take this picture. But look, I mean, it's a double rainbow. It's, I don't know what it means. It's beautiful. Um, so this was amazing. I mean, it was unreal. It's just this beautiful display. And my children, like, like lost their minds uh, as they came and told me. And, and if you don't believe me, I've got some video footage of it. So watch their reaction. goodness. Eddie just lost his mind. He just, he heard his little sister like with that high squealing pitch. It's like, oh, that's what you do? Ah! It was amazing. I don't care who you are. I mean, I do care who you are, but I don't care if you, if you like, don't, if you're running down an alley barefoot, filled with broken glass, chased by a honey badger, and there's a, there's a rainbow in the sky, you'll be like, huh? Like, it's just, rainbows are beautiful. They're awe-inspiring. 
And, and, and it's funny that this image, the rainbow, is what we mostly associate with the story that we just heard in, in part read for us from Genesis 6, the story of Noah and the flood. I mean, in many ways, this story is synonymous with rainbows, but at least that's how the, the myriad of, of children's versions of this story would have us believe, which I've always found so strange how that one of the quintessential Bible stories in children's Bibles is the story of widespread destruction and God's judgment. Like how, like, how did we make this a story? I mean, like, I mean you, you have these innocuous images that kind of domesticate the story. Like, this is what we think of, oh, Noah and the ark, it's wonderful. And, and like, this is kind of how we think about the story of Noah and the ark. It's more like the story of a floating petting zoo than what it actually is, namely the story of God's judgment upon the earth. In fact, I think a more accurate depiction is actually the painting of the 19th century artist Francis Danby, who depicts the deluge narrative in Genesis in this way. It's much darker than what we might think as the image of refracted light in arch form displays for us. While we might associate the story with rainbows, this is actually more of an accurate picture of what the flood narrative is. And I'm going to be, be really honest with you. Like, this story is hard for me to wrap my mind around and my heart around. Not just as a pastor, but as, as a human being. How do we make sense of this story? Because, I mean, far from it being a story of cute animals and bright rainbows, this is a story of unimaginable human corruption and seemingly unbelievable divine judgment. And so the question for us is, what do we do whether you're a Christian or not, what do you do? How do we explain and make sense of Noah and the flood? Or more pointedly, what do we do with, with God and the flood? How do we make sense of this? Now, I know there's a lot of material to cover, and I, like, time will not permit me to get into a lot of things like the historicity of the flood, uh, the comparative uh, deluge narratives in the ancient Near Eastern culture, uh, or one of the most you know, pressing questions is, how did the unicorns miss the ark when the floods began to come? You know, that's a very important question. Um, I, what I will point us to, you got you to have some laughter on a sermon on the flood, okay, people? But, but what we, I will point you to is on Mondays, we've been doing these Facebook Live videos where we respond to some of the content and questions that we, we don't have the time to get to on a Sunday morning. So we'll, we'll jump into some of that content tomorrow, so I encourage you to check that out. But, but really, the big question that I want to lean into, and I think I'm guessing you want me to lean into, is the question of how do we make sense of God's judgment through the flood? How could a loving God do such a thing? Now, when we come to this story, it, it may look, if we just read Genesis 6 through 10, if that's the only account we have of Scripture, we may come to the conclusion that God is just this childish, capricious deity who is just reactive and really doesn't like His creation very much. Uh, especially when you read that kind of with, with the backdrop of the other ancient Near Eastern uh, narratives of the flood, that's really the common narrative, that gods don't really like humanity, and they're coming in and wiping out. In fact, one story tells about how the gods were just tired of being woken up by humans' noises, so that's why they sent the flood. So God is really just this cranky neighbor who hates your parties. Uh, but in, in the, the, the story of Genesis, we actually see a different picture of God, because in some ways we come to the Genesis narrative and we say, ease up, God. Why are you so quick to judge your enemies? But what's so interesting is that when you read like the Psalms, for example, and the cries of the psalmist, you see the exact opposite issue. You see the, the psalmist declaring, speed up, God. 
why won't you judge your enemies? You see the psalmist declaring that God would do something, that we have been attacked, we have been oppressed. God, rise up and judge your enemies. And so at, at a simple glance, Genesis, the account of the flood, makes it look like God is not patient. But really what we see throughout Scripture is that God displays what, what Scripture refers to as, as this attribute of, of being long-suffering. It's this kind of old archaic word that describes God's radical and merciful patience with His people and with His enemies. That God is uniquely merciful in the way He delays judgment and even removes judgment throughout the biblical text. But the question is, where's all that long-suffering in the flood narrative? Because it looks like God is just impatient and reactive and not really filled with all, much, all that much mercy. And so while, while it is true, I believe when you read the Scriptures, it's true that God is long-suffering. What our text shows us this morning is that there's also a point when God says enough. There's a point when God says enough. Not because humanity poses a threat to God, as if humanity could ever do that. That's actually what we see in the ancient Near Eastern stories of the other floods, is the gods who are threatened by humanity have to intervene. But actually what we see here is that humanity poses a threat to itself and to creation, and God intervenes because of that. So look with me at Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 6, and we, we kind of see the, the stage, the, the context in which the flood comes. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Now here in Genesis 6, you actually have a reference back to Genesis 1. In fact, there's a lot of similarities. When you read carefully, there's a lot of similarities between the flood story and the story of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. And in Genesis 6, 5 through 6, we see this reference back to Genesis 1. At the end of Genesis 1, God has created all things, and He looks at His creation, all of it, through a, through a wide-angle lens and through a microscopic lens. He sees everything He's made, and He declares it is very... There it is. Wonderful. Now, we come to Genesis 6. And the same God is looking upon creation that has fallen into sin and corruption. And he says, and behold, God looked upon the earth and he saw that it was filled with violence, filled with evil, filled with mayhem and chaos. And so clearly something has changed. In Genesis 6, God looks upon creation and sees that it has been filled. Everything was very corrupt, evil, and violent. While humanity was set up and designed to fulfill this commandment of filling the earth and subduing it, multiplying it, being a blessing to the world, we see now humanity is filling the earth and multiplying evil and violence and oppression. There was a uniquely widespread evil that was prolific and pervasive in every human heart at this time, and we cannot fully comprehend it, but it was so great, the corruption was so great in the world this time that, that God declares that He regretted making humanity, which, I mean, we all know what regret is like, but for God to declare that He regretted something is severe. In fact, that word regret, what it literally means, it means to breathe heavily uh, out of a sense of deep emotion, that you've done something so regrettable that it is causing you to almost hyperventilate. You've done something stupid and foolish. Like, like for example, uh, it's like if you were to eat like for three hours at a Golden Corral buffet and then run a marathon, you would feel what this Hebrew word of regret is kind of getting at. You'd be breathing heavily and you'd be filled with regret. 
what God is communicating this, in this passage, it doesn't literally mean that God made a mistake. It's not he's like, what was I thinking? Because he would cease to be God if that were true. But what God is communicating to us, he's trying to help us understand in terms that we can grasp how unspeakable the evil is in this world. It's like when, if, if someone you love deeply uh, does something that breaks your heart, it, maybe they don't hurt you directly, but they've done something to themselves that, that brings you pain, and, and you might respond to them by saying, it kills me that you have done this. Or you might say, I can't believe that you have done this. Now, both of those statements, they're, they're not literally true, but you say that in such a way to try to get into that person's mind how serious the situation is and how deeply hurt you are. That's actually what God is trying to communicate about the feeling of the corruption and humanity in this world. Similarly, the word grieved is used that God uses to describe His response here. And the word grieved in verse 6, it's a, it's a word to describe this sense of, of deep physical and or emotional pain that someone has experienced. And what this is telling us about Yahweh, about the God of Scripture, is that this God, far from being removed from humanity and annoyed by humanity, is actually so uniquely connected to humanity that their self-inflicted wounds through sin and rebellion affect Him. That God is so impacted by the rebellion of His creation, He is so connected to them that their rebellion harms Him in such a way. And so what, whatever the reason is for God's judgment, it cannot be because he simply just hates and despises humanity, which again, that is the motivation in some of these other ancient Near Eastern narratives of the flood. The reason must be that there is such an unspeakable evil that has taken over the world that God has to intervene that he has to stop it for the sake of humanity, for creation, and for the, the future of all things. But even still, even when I say that, like, okay, like, I can kind of get that, I understand a little bit of the context, but like, how on earth does a bunch of bad people doing a bunch of bad things warrant this kind of judgment? Because the, the punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime, and I get that. So where, where do we go from here? How do, how do we make sense of this story? We actually have to go right to the weird stuff. So back up with me into chapter 6, verses 2 and 4. Some of you are probably wondering that w why we skipped this part. I was hoping we could avoid talking about the Nephilim, and now we're going to talk about it. So uh, verse 2 through 4. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of, uh, who were of old, the men of renown. Pretty self-explanatory. Let's have communion. Uh, like, like <laughs> I don't know. What do you, like, I don't know what this means. There's so many questions that come up with this. And, and, and to be clear, I mean, like, this, this text has baffled theologians and just normal humans for centuries. And, and at the end of the day, we don't, we don't fully know who the sons of God are that are being referenced here and, and who or what the Nephilim are. Uh, I mean, that word is usually translated as giants, Nephilim, but we just fully don't know what's going on here. So I, I want to offer two theories that have been kind of put forth that I think are the most likely and actually have a common thread that runs through them. So the first one is this. The first theory is that the sons of God, which is a common colloquial phrase in Hebrew, uh, which is used to refer to angels. 
So you, you'll see this phrase throughout the Hebrew scriptures referring to angels. And so one theory is that this is the account of fallen angels who have rebelled against God, who have crossed over creation boundaries, have entered earth and have taken on human bodies as a way to kind of be double agents and sabotage God's good world by unleashing unspeakable evil through their powers now as these kind of hybrid creatures who are angelic and human in some way. And so that's, that's one theory, that this is who the sons of God are, and they've, they are in part in, uh, responsible in creating the Nephilim, who are these giants who are ruling the world as well. The other theory is that the sons of God, it's, it's also another common phrase used in other ancient Near Eastern documents to refer to human kings, human kings that had unique power and were almost seen as the equivalent of God. And so the one theory is that there are these mighty kings on earth who have collectively come together, who have amassed great power and authority, and have unleashed great evil through oppression and abuse, not the least of which is against many women who were abused and taken advantage of in any ways that these kings wanted. The idea is that this collective group of powerful kings is so powerful and oppressive that they are unleashing an evil and violence on the world having never been experienced before to date. Now, regardless of which theory is true, the common thread that runs through all of them is that there is an unspeakable evil that has been unleashed on the earth. So great and so powerful, so corrupt, that if it isn't stopped, then God's plan of restoring all of creation and the future of all humanity is kind of in the balance here. That if God does not intervene, then everything is over. I think in many ways, this is kind of the picture, and it's hard for us to get our minds wrapped around this, but it has to, it cannot be that God just simply hates and despises humanity. It must be that there is an evil beyond our comprehension that God is intervening to stop, even for our good. Now, we can look at this story and kind of sit back and just like, I don't know about that, and kind of have this question of like, I just, this, this feels like a story that's just mythological, it's hard to believe, and I get that. But we can look at this story and write it off as ridiculous and mythological, or we can actually heed the words of Jesus who he himself affirmed the historicity of this story, who affirmed the severity of the theological implications of this story, when he declares in Matthew 24, in writing about the days of Noah, Jesus says this in chapter 24, verse 38. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man." Now, instead of the question of how could God possibly release this kind of judgment upon the earth, and that's a valid question, I'm not trying to dismiss it, perhaps the question we should ask is this, am I doing anything that would bring about a flood? Am I living my life in such a way, are there certain habits and decisions, perspectives and mindsets that I have adopted and that I live out and emulate that are bringing about and have brought about some kind of destruction in my life? and the lives of those around me. We can look at the world and say it's a mess, that this culture is going to hell in a handbasket, which is just the strangest expression ever, but, but like, or, or we can step back and say, is there any sense in which I am complicit in and responsible for the mess that I find myself in? 
I think, I think it's actually really helpful, the, the words of the clinical psychologist, Dr. Jordan Peterson, he says this in describing kind of this awareness of this potential evil that is in all of us, that kind of sounds dark and morbid, but is actually a good thing. He says this, it's really helpful. He says, consider the murderousness of your own spirit before you dare accuse others and before you attempt to repair the fabric of the world. Maybe it's not the world that's at fault. Maybe it's you. You've failed to make the mark. You've missed the target. You've fallen short of the glory of God. You've sinned. And all of that is your contribution to the insufficiency and the evil of the world. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, seriously, I I, I don't want to be heavy and dark, but, but there's a sense in which this is good news. That there's grace even in God's judgment because God's judgment comes as a way to awaken us to the potential things in our life that warrant judgment. It's an opportunity for us to look at ourselves and be honest and reflecting, do I know that the propensity and the ability within me to unleash unspeakable evils in my life, my family's life, and my neighbor's life? Which is why I think Jesus, as he continues on in Matthew 24, he gives this word to us in verse 42. He says, therefore, stay awake. Be mindful, be alert, be attentive, be watchful. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And so, yes, there's a point in which God says enough. But there's goodness even in that. Because as God does get to a point where he says, he says enough, There is a path that God provides through the flood. That even though there is a point in which God says enough, there is a path that God provides through the flood, and we see that in the person of Noah. So we finally get to Noah. And and notice, if you want to flip back to Genesis, if you're in there, Genesis chapter 6, we see this description of Noah in verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. Now, some translations will say Noah was perfect, and that's not a a great translation because that gives this impression that that Noah was sinless, without spot or blemish at all. And that's not really what this word is communicating. Instead, what God is actually doing, like I mentioned, there's a lot of similarities between the flood narrative and the, uh, the creation narrative. What God's doing here is actually making a clear distinction and contrast between Noah and Adam. While Adam... In the garden, if you remember, while Adam in his sin and shame hid from God in the beauty of the garden, Noah walks with God in a corrupt and chaotic world. This is the contrast that God wants to see. To To walk before God doesn't mean that we are without sin and perfect. That's not the picture. Noah was not perfect. But rather what this means, to walk before God, to be blameless, what we see is it's not, it doesn't mean that you have less sin to look at in your life. But rather, it means that you look at the sin in your life very clearly, and it doesn't make you hide from God. To be blameless, to be whole, which is really what that word means, it means that you have a proper understanding of yourself. You know the propensity of brokenness and darkness within you, and you don't look away, and you keep that. That allows you to continue to walk before God. It doesn't lead you into shame and hiding, but it leads you to walk before God. It means that we have a very clear understanding of who we are and who God is, and we see that clearly. It's kind of like how the ways in which I attempt to try to discipline my son Edmund, he's almost three, Um, what I have to do with Edmund, when he does something wrong, usually he'll like close his eyes as if like I can't see him in that moment, you know, and I always say, Eddie, look at me, eyes on me, you need to see me. 
because he needs to understand. I'm not trying to guilt him, you know. It's like, it's like, I'm the alpha male. Like, I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to help him understand what you've done. I don't want you to repeat it. And you need to see me that you understand it, particularly when he does something to hurt his sisters. If he hits one of his sisters and they're crying, I say, Edmund, look at your sister. You need to see her. I, I'm not doing that to heap shame, like, like look at what you've done. I'm just saying you need to clearly see the impact of your actions so that you never do that again, so that you never allow this, this kind of action to be unleashed in the world. See what you've done so that it never happens again. In the same way, what Noah is doing as he is walking before God is he is mindful of his brokenness and sin, and he continues to walk before him. This is the path that God provides through the flood. Not to say that you will be perfect and blameless if you do this, but when we seek to know who we are and to know who God is, we will walk in wholeness of life. It is this call that God has upon us to walk before him in the entirety of our days. Every aspect of our lives lived before God, our audience of one, with our eyes wide open, fully aware of what is within us, and fully aware of the one who holds us. This is what wholeness means. A whole life is not a life of obligatory obedience, but rather a whole life is a life of complete integration, where every facet of your existence, your sexuality, your finances, your work, your relationships, your leisure time, everything about you is lived under the lordship of God and Jesus Christ that you live before him as your audience of one. There is no division. There are no partitions or compartmentalization. There is wholeness. And this is actually something we long for. We long to live before God, even if we don't recognize God as who he is. Because you know what's interesting about the story of Noah? It's actually not about Noah at all. When you, when you read the story of Noah, Noah doesn't say one word until after the flood. I don't know if you noticed that. Noah is speechless. He does not speak, which is a way to communicate that God is the main focus of this story. God is the one who speaks. God is the one who fills the ark. God is the one who brings the flood. God is the one who shuts the door to the ark. God is the one who keeps the, the ark afloat amidst the, the chaos of the seas, which I don't know if you noticed that there was no instruction for Noah to build a rudder on the ark, because that's showing that God is sovereignly in control and will protect and preserve us in the midst of the chaos. In fact, the first thing that Noah says is actually, it's after the flood, it's a curse on his grandson. Like, that's the first thing this blameless man says, like, nice going, Gramps. He's the worst grandpa in the world. He's also the best one because he's the only one, but um, <laughs> stupid joke. But the purpose, the purpose of this is that God is the focus of this story. And so, so yes, there is a point when God says enough. But he provides a pathway through the flood, and that pathway is a life lived before him wholly and completely, not in part of my life, not in some aspects of my life, but living before God in all things. And so let me ask you, in light of that, let me ask you this question. Who are you living for and before? Who are you living for and before? Because, and, and hear me, I'm not asking the question, do you believe in God and do you like going to church? I'm asking you a larger question than that. I'm asking, do you believe in God in such a way that he has jurisdiction over every aspect of your life, that every part of your life is walked before him, 
I'm not asking, do you believe in God and walk before Him when you're in this space on Sunday morning, but are you continually walking before God and ever mindful and wakeful of His presence in your Monday life as well? Do you walk before God when you walk the halls of your schools? Do you walk before God when you're, when you're closing a deal or, or approaching a deadline at work? Do you walk before God when you're online or posting things on social media? Do you walk before God when you are coaching or when you are attending one of your kids' sporting events? Let that one sink in just for a little bit longer, okay? Do you walk before God when you set your budget, when you interact with your significant other? Do you walk before God when no one else is watching? That's what blamelessness and wholeness looks like. Whether you like the story of Noah or not, all of us want to live like Noah. Maybe with less animals and less carpentry work, but we all long to have this kind of wholeness, this kind of integrated life. All of us, though, whether we admit it or not, though, we are all living for and before something or someone. The question, though, is it the right audience? And is it the audience that will allow you in, to, to bring you through the storms of life? And I believe that God is the only audience who we can live before and for in such a way that we will find rescue from the chaos and the judgment that we deserve. Because, and, I, and I know this because there is a promise that God remembers. Yes, there's a point in which God says enough. Yes, God provides a pathway through the flood. And it's because we know this because there's a promise God remembers. As the only living things on earth are aboard this ark, not knowing when the, waters will, will, when the rains will stop, when the waters and the flood waters will subside, they are in this ark not knowing when the chaos will end. And it's in this moment when God's grace appears amidst his judgment when we read in Genesis 8-1, but God remembered Noah. And it's not like, God, it's not like he like all, like all of a sudden, like, oh, the flood. Like, like it's, not, like he, it's not like he brought him to mind. That word remembered is this idea of covenant. God is saying, I have remembered what I told you, Noah, and I am here with you and for you. And so, so as the chaotic waters of the flood begin to subside and as they are calmed, just as they were at creation, and, and as God blows a wind across the waters, just as the Spirit hovered over them at creation. And, and as dry land begins to emerge from the chaos of the seas, just as they did at creation. And just as Noah walks out of the ark into this new creation world, being told to be fruitful and multiply, just as they were told at creation, God declares these words in Genesis 9. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. This is not just a, a meteorological agreement that God is making about inclement weather with humanity, but rather this covenant that God is making with Noah. It's about his ultimate hatred of sin because it destroys us. And it's about his ultimate love of his entire creation. The act of God remembering Noah and establishing his covenant with him is actually pointing us to the greater promise that God remembers. Because while we read Scripture sometimes with this kind of isolated, blinder lenses on, we have to remember, we have to read the story of the Bible in light of its whole story. As great as the flood was, the flood was really just a symbol of judgment. 
As powerful as the ark was, as a source of salvation and grace, it was purely a symbol of salvation and grace. As righteous as Noah may have been, Noah was simply a symbol of new creation, pointing to a greater promise that God remembers. Because remember when I mentioned in Genesis 6 that God was grieved, that He was so uniquely tied to and identified with humanity that their corruption broke His heart. He was so closely knit with humanity that their actions broke His heart. It's like watching a dear friend suffer from drug addiction. And, and you're, you're wrecked by their actions, and it just tears you apart. This is the picture of God suffering on behalf of humanity. Yes, God is angry at sin, but He is also brokenhearted over it for what it is doing to the crown of His creation. But what Genesis is actually pointing us to is the time when God would suffer again on behalf of humanity, where He would so identify with and be connected to humanity actually so extremely that he would actually become human himself, that he would endure the very thing that broke his heart, namely sin and rebellion. Jesus would become that so that the flood of God's judgment would not fall upon us, but would fall upon Christ. The story of the flood of Noah in Genesis is pointing us to actually the greater promise that God's judgment, his greater and final judgment, can be something we avoid through the sacrifice of Jesus. For just as Noah was obedient to God in climbing upon an ark so that he might be rescued from God's judgment, Jesus was faithful and obedient to the Father by climbing onto a cross to be our rescuer. That Jesus is the one that this story is pointing us to. But the final question for us to consider, for all of us, is this. Where will you be found? Where will you be found? Where will you be found when judgment comes? Will you be found outside in the rain, living as if God is of no consequence? Living as your own God, living for something else, living a broken and bifurcated, compartmentalized life where you long for wholeness? Or will you be found in the ark of God's covenantal love? living wide awake, fully aware of, yes, how broken we are, but how good and gracious God is to redeem us and rescue us from the judgment we deserve. The story of the flood declares to us that there is indeed a point when God says enough. As He looks upon our sin, He says enough. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus was enough so that God could look upon us and say, instead of being the recipient of my judgment, you are now the recipient of my grace and love because my wrath was bore upon Jesus completely so that you can receive all the grace that I have to give. The good news is that through Christ on the cross in our place, God declares definitively once and for all, Jesus is enough. For as great as our sin is and as deserving of judgment as we might be, Christ's sacrifice on our behalf is good enough to free us, to forgive us, to deliver us, and to bring us back to the God that we all long to know and walk before. But is Jesus enough for you? Will you be found under the shelter of the cross, the only place where we can be saved from judgment? Or will you be found out in the floodwater seeking to face the storm on your own? 
As the great hymn says, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Where will you be found? Let's pray. Father, I do know that these, this is not an easy message. This is not, these aren't easy words to hear. But Lord, I do pray that you would help us to see more and more the ability and the propensity within all of us to ruin our lives. And Lord, may we see, and may we see your judgment as a means by which you are actually awakening us to our need for you. Lord, all of us long to live lives of wholeness. Help us to see that through Christ Jesus, you provide that pathway. And so, Lord, help us to be a people who live before you as our audience of one. Lord, may we see that that all of our life and every aspect, every facet of our existence should be lived before you. Lord, may we see that and may we find the wholeness that all of us are desiring. And may we find it in Jesus, the one who is our rescuer. We pray this, Lord, in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.